Welcome to the Chinese History Podcast. I'm Yiming Ha. Joining me today is King Kuang Wang, an independent scholar who graduated from the University of Southern California with a master's degree in Chinese history, and he is now working as a part-time lecturer at the Hong Kong University's School of Professional and Continuing Education. His research focuses on colonial Korea during the Mongol Yuan period. And he recently published a paper on how Korean scholars in Korea viewed the concept of sovereignty while under Mongol domination. So, King Kuang, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for your kind introduction. <laughs> so today, I want to talk a little bit about your research on the Korea Kingdom while it was under Mongol rule. And Korea was a state that was founded in the year 918. It reunified the Korean Peninsula and established a very strong state. It threw back numerous invasions from the Khitan Liao, and it successfully navigated its way through the multipolar world of East Asia during that time, between the Song Dynasty, the Liao Dynasty, and later the Jurchen Jin Dynasty. However, in 1231, the Mongols invaded Korea, and this was part of their broader invasions throughout Eurasia. If I recall correctly, this was one of nine invasions that the Mongols launched against Korea. So to start off, perhaps can you give us a brief background on the Mongol invasions of Korea? Yeah, sure. I think you rightly point out that the invasions of Korea was part of the Mongols' expansion in the Eurasian continent. And without going too much into details, I will just provide a just a brief course of events for some points for reference. So in 1206, uh, Chinggis Khan proclaimed himself the universal ruler of the steppe, and then in 1210, he subjugated the Western Xia. And then, beginning from 1211, the Mongols continued to put military pressure on the Georgian Jin Empire until its collapse in 1234. So here, the story I think became more relevant to the Mongol invasions of Korea. The military pressure of the Mongols destabilized the Georgian Empire, and many Khitans revolted in Manchuria, and some of them invaded Korea in the late 1210s. It should be noted that I think the relations between the Mongols and Korea was not at all hostile from the beginning, but at the same time, it was not without suspicions. The combined forces of the、uh, Mongols and Koryos suppressed the Khitan rebels in Korea and concluded a treaty in 1219. So this is when the tension between the Mongols and Korea built up. The Mongols began to demand tributes from Korea on roughly seven occasions between 1221 and 1224. So. It's quite an intense demand for seven times within just a short period of three years. And privately, Mongol envoys who were resp- responsible for tribute missions also demanded tribute for themselves. Another thing to consider is that as the Jin Empire gradually lost control of Manchuria under Mongol military pressure, some former Jin officials surrendered to the Mongols and established. A state called Dongxia that exists between 1215 and 1233. So the Dongxia state, with its own political agenda, also created tension between the Mongols and Korea. Eventually, an event in which some Dongxia soldiers, disguised as 
Koreans killed a Mongol envoy and led to the Mongols breaking off relations with the Koryo in 1225. And later, from 1231 to 1259, the Mongols launched several invasions to Koryo. There were several invasions, as you point out, in total nine invasions, but I think they can be roughly divided into two phases. The reign of Ogodai marked the first phase between 1231 and 1238. And during the political chaos after the reign of Ogodai in 1241, we can see a clear break when the Mongols did not attack Koryo. And under the reigns of Guyuk and Mongke, the Mongols resumed their campaign between 1247 and 1259. The Koryo court and people were able to put up some local resistance and scored some minor victories, but in general, the Mongols still dominated the battlefield. A major strategy of the Koryo court was to move its capital to the Kangwa Island and fortified its defense there. The Kangwa Island was such an easily defensible position that the Mongols never successfully besieged the island. And the Koryo court was able to maintain its supply line along the western seaboard to keep the island supplied. So I think this is sort of the dynamics within that period, the 30-year period of the Mongol invasions. So I just have a very quick question. Why was there a gap between the reigns of Ogadai and the reigns of Guyuk and Monka where the Mongols didn't invade Koryo? Yeah, yeah. So after the death of Ogadai, the Mongol court was under the regency of Ogadai's widow. And before the enthronement of Guyuk, I think it's in 1245, something like that. So the regent, the female regency, controlled court politics of the Mongol Empire for several years. And in general, the politics there was, according to uh, official sources, was quite chaotic. And so I think this is one of the reasons that the Mongols did not attack Koryo because of the chaos. I see. So the political situation within the Mongol Empire put a halt to the invasions temporarily. Yes, yes, you can understand it in that way, yeah. So, as you said, the Koryo court retreated to this island where it put up a very strong resistance. In fact, it resisted for almost three decades. Why did the Koryo court ultimately surrender in the end, despite putting up such a strong resistance? Yeah, I think there are several points that uh, we can consider about the eventual surrender of the Koryo court. So, Economically speaking, the long years of warfare destroyed the farmlands and displaced people, especially peasants. Records in the Koryosa, the official history of Koryo, shows that the Koryo government actively encouraged people to reclaim abandoned fields after the invasion. And this suggests the large-scale destruction of economy and that many people who were supposed to farm those fields escaped to other places or perished in the war. The Mongol also kidnapped Koryo people as part of the, the loot, right, in their military campaign. And many of them settled in Manchuria around the region of Shenyang. 
So I think there was an economic dimension to Koryu surrender in the end. And in terms of the military, it is true that the Koryu military was able to put up defenses and especially some elite troops called Thambachar were able to win some battles. But on the whole, these were not enough. With hindsight, we know that the Mongols stopped the invasion in the 1250s. But from the perspective of Koryu, the Mongols invaded for around 30 years and came and went at their will and did not show any signs stopping the invasions in the foreseeable future. So it seems to be a strong reason to consider surrendering to the Mongols. And I think there, there was also a very strong political reason for Koryu kings, if not the whole Koryu court, to decide to surrender to the Mongols. And here we need to consider the uh, political scene of Koryu at that time and going back a little bit in time. Beginning from 1170, military dictators controlled Koryu politics. And after that, Koryu kings were mere figureheads of the state. When the war broke out, the military dictators were hardliners in resisting the invasions, uh, while a lot of the civil officials proposed to sue for peace and establish tributary relations with the Mongols, like what they have done with the Kitans and Jurchens previously. The military dictators were very adamant in insisting the relocation of the court and continuing its resistance. But opportunity for the Korukin came in 1258 when the Che clan, the most powerful military dictator, was purged from the Koryu court. Although some military leaders still controlled Koryu politics, the purge suggests that the military dictatorship was much weaker. The year of 1258 was also the death of Menke and the beginning of the civil war between Aribuka and Kublai. Koryu kings eventually sided with Kublai and gained the goodwill of the future emperor. So the Koryu kings were able to oust the military dictators once and for all with the help of the Mongols. So these course of events, I think, led to the eventual surrender of the Koryu court to the Mongols. So in addition to the Mongols' overwhelming military superiority, there were also economic considerations and practical political benefits for the Koryo king in surrendering to the Mongols. Mm -hmm. yeah. So now that Koryo has surrendered, how did Kublai integrate Koryo into his empire? So in current scholarship, it's still debatable whether the Mongols integrated Koryo into their empire or not, or at least some scholars maintain that uh, Koryo was an independent kingdom. So I think a discussion of how the Mongols integrated Koryo into their empires depends on how one defines the meaning of integration. Perhaps we can uh, look at how scholars understand the situations of Koryo at that time. And here I, I will try to provide two sides of the same coin here. First, look at those who highlight the autonomy of Koryo. Scholars understand the relations between the Mongols and Koryo through the lens of tributary relations. 
The basic framework of tributary practice is that when a tributary state recognized the overlordship of another state, then the overlord state would in turn recognize the autonomy of the tributary state. Such a relationship was often confirmed by the practice of rituals and was often nominal. And some understand the integration of Koryo through the Mongol worldview. Generally speaking, the Mongols categorized people into two kinds, those who accept Mongol rule and those who did not. Even the acceptance of Mongol rule was often nominal. Submitted states were still required to perform certain obligations to signify their political, military, and economic submission to the Mongols. Specific to the context of Koryo, there were several elements that indicate the integration was more than just nominal. First is the marriage tie with the um, Mongol court. Such a marriage tie turned Koryo kings into imperial sons-in-law, and the two courts maintained marriage ties for almost a century from the first marriage in 1274 to the last one in 1365. Being imperial sons-in-law, Koryo kings were part of the imperial family. And second element is that Koryo kings needed to serve in the imperial bodyguard. It's called a Keshik. Before Koryo kings' ascension, they were often sent to serve in the imperial bodyguard. The institution of sending hostage son to serve in the imperial bodyguard had a long history among nomadic peoples and was considered an avenue to foster political ties, especially between the emperors and his subjects. And the third element is that the Mongols set up a branch secretariat in Koryo. It was originally a military establishment that, to facilitate campaigns to Japan and gradually transformed into a local administrative unit. Although there were subtle differences with the Brand Secretariat in China proper, the Brand Secretariat in Koryo came with actual offices and duties and administered the Yuan Civil Service examination after it was reopened in 1315. So I think these were some of the elements that indicate the more than nominal integration of uh, Koryo. It's also my understanding that before the Mongol invasions, the Koryo rulers styled themselves as emperors, and they had imperial titles, imperial regalia, and practiced imperial ceremonies. But after the Mongol conquest, they were downgraded into kings. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So as you said, the Koryo rulers intermarried into the Mongol imperial family. They were imperial son-in-laws. They served in the Keshik, the imperial bodyguard at the Mongol court in Dadu and Shangdu. So they must have absorbed a lot of Mongol culture and Mongol influence. What were some of these Mongol cultural influences on Koryo? Yeah, there's a good questions. I think when the Koryo kings traveled to the Mongol capital in Dadu and stayed there and served in the imperial bodyguard Kashyyyk, they also adopted some of the Mongol customs. For example, I think the Koryo kings adopted Mongol names alongside with the Synodic one. Another thing is that the Koryo kings also adopted Mongol attires. So the attires, the clothing, their hairstyle, 
we'll turn to the Mongol ones. The lifestyle also adopts some of the Mongol elements, such as they were now favored hunting, much like a nomadic people. They also adopted some foreign furniture in the lifestyle too, such as the foreign chairs. I think in the choreo side, it's named the Fu Chang. Another thing, we can also look at the noble women of the choreo court as well. One of the more fashionable items that exist in the late choreo periods was the Mongol hat that the Mongol noble women wore, which is named the Gugu hat. And it became very fashionable that noble women of the choreo court often request this hat to be made for them or to be granted to them. So I think these are the several elements that indicating the spread of a Mongol culture to choreo. Yeah, and I think you see the same thing happening in China, where a lot of Chinese people took on Mongol names, they wore Mongol clothing and the Mongol hairstyle because they were under Mongol rule. Yeah, definitely. So the, the experience between China and Korea was not much different under the same Mongol emperors, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So in a normal tributary relationship, and I know the tributary system is a very hotly debated topic and it's very complex, but for the sake of simplicity, in a normal tributary relationship, like the one we see much later with the Ming and the Chosan, the superior state, China, that is to say the Ming, invests the tributary state, that is to say Chosan, but aside from this investiture of the Chosan king, the Ming state, China, doesn't really interfere with the affairs of Korea or the other tributary states. Yet the dynamic between Koryo and the Yuan was different. I mean, the Koryo rulers were imperial son-in-laws, and so their proximity to the Mongol ruler was much closer, and therefore they would invite more scrutiny. So were there any examples where the Mongol emperor interfered in the internal affairs of Koryo? Yeah, there are several instances that the Mongol emperors interfered in choreo politics. In general, I think the political dynamics between the Mongols and choreo was that the Mongols practiced in direct rule to their subjugated states. But when the political situation demanded, then the Mongols were still able to exert influence to their subordinate state. The primary aim is to preserve stabilities within the empire. So there are several actual examples that the Mongols influenced in the politics of the Koryo court because the political environment at that period was very unstable that the Mongol emperors deemed it necessary to interfere and to stabilize the situation. One actual example was the enthronement and dethronement of King Chongson in 1298. So Chongson was enthroned and dethroned in the same year. So his reign was only eight months. So the primary reason for his short reign was that his political and institutional reforms that he launched upon his 
enthronement encroached the political interests of some of the choreo ministers that served the court from the reign of his father, King Chongyeol. The reforms of Chunsan created a power struggle within the choreo court, and the situation at that time was not very stable. Another thing to consider the dethronement of King Chunsan was that he was not able to maintain a harmonious relationship with his Mongol princess consort. After he married a Mongol princess in 1296, Chunsan favored another Korean consort, and this caused, according to the official records, jealousy from the Mongol princess. So the Mongol princess enlisted help from the Mongol court and tried to investigate some of the accusations against the Korean consort. The accusation was that the Korean consort placed a curse on the Mongol princess, and that's the reason Chunsan did not favor the Mongol princess, but the Korean consort. So the Mongol princess enlisted help from the Mongol court, and the Mongol court responded with dispatching Mongol envoys to investigate and interrogate the Korean consort. And according to the records, the investigation mission was a hundred men strong. So the Mongol court sent a lot of people to investigate this dispute between the uh, royal couple. It also caused a lot of trouble within the royal court. So I think these two, first, Chunsan's political reform caused instability within the royal court, and Chunsan's failure to maintain a good relationship with the Mongol princess also caused trouble. So as a result, the Mongol emperor at that time, Changzhong, dethroned Chungson and reinstated his father, Chungyeol, to the Koryo throne. So I, I think we can see this as a very lively example of how the Mongol emperors interfered with Koryo politics because of the Koryo king's inability to govern the Koryo state. So it seems to me that these Mongol princesses who married the Koryo kings really wielded tremendous power through virtue of the relationship to the Mongol rulers back home, and they can invite a lot of scrutiny to the Koryo court. But intermarriage went both ways, and we have cases of Korean women marrying into the Mongol imperial family. The most famous example was Empress Qi, who married the last Yuan Emperor Empress Shun, Togon Timur, and she was the subject of a very popular Korean drama many years back. What was her influence on Koryo? Right. To understand the situation or the dynamics between the Mongol court and Koryo court, I think we need to consider that during the Mongol period, not only the Koryo kings had direct access to the Mongol court. Koryo ministers or other Koryo people also had direct access to the Mongol court as well. So this created a situation where Koryo ministers was able to leverage the Mongol court to the advantage in the Koryo court. So as you said, 
Empress Qi married Emperor Sun, and this marriage between Empress Qi and the Mongol Emperor gave Empress Qi's family, the Qi family, a very powerful position in the royal court. With Empress Qi's marriage and the tie with the Mongol Emperor, the Qi family was able to benefit themselves. I think the most significant influence of this marriage was that now the royal minister was not only a subject of the royal kings, but also had ties with the Mongol emperors or the Mongol court. That they can't use their ties with the Mongol court to their own advantage within the royal court. And the Qi family was not the only family who had a marriage tie with the Mongol court. Other court ministers also sent their daughters to serve in the imperial palace in Dadu, which now termed them as the Kungyur,、uh, meaning tribute women. So these tribute women had the、uh, possibility to be. Like Empress Qi to become an imperial consort of the Mongol emperors, so we can see that the tribute women, the marriage tie with the Mongol emperor, became a very influential avenue for the royal ministers to have a direct access to the Mongol court and to leverage the Mongols against perhaps some of the elements that were not、uh, favorable to them. Yeah, and I think you see some of this play out in the later Chosun Dynasty as well, because the Ming, much like the Mongols, also demanded women from Chosun to serve in the Ming harem, and the Chosun kings were able to leverage their relationship with these Korean women in the Ming court to gain information on the Ming or to help with their appeals to the Ming court. So, from my reading of Koryo, it seems that the Mongol emperors appointed a branch of the Koryo royal family to serve as the Prince of Shenyang. Based in Shenyang in the Manchuria region, why did this title exist? So to understand the Prince of Shenyang, we also need to look at the establishment of this princely title in the first place. So perhaps we need to go back a little bit back to Chongzong, who was dethroned by the Mongols, and after that he returned to Dadu. With the Mongol princess, and then stayed there for around ten years before he was enthroned again in 1308. So, as I had mentioned earlier, that before Koryo king's enthronement, they were required to serve in the imperial kishik. So this gave them very powerful political ties with the Mongol imperial clan, and specifically to King Chongzong, he fostered a very strong tie when he was in Dadu with the future emperor Wu Zhong and Ren Zhong. So when Cheng Zhong died, there was a succession dispute between one branch of the imperial family against the branch of Wu Zhong and Ren Zhong, so Chunzong supported Wu Zhong and Ren Zhong. After that, and because of his support, he was able to be re-enthroned as Koryo King. And at the same time, he was also 
because of his contribution to the enthronement of Wuzhong and Renzhong. He was enfeebled also as the Prince of Shenyang, and later the title was promoted to Prince of Shen. So now the core kings held two titles. One was the King of Koryu, and the other was the Prince of Shen. But at the same time, as I mentioned, there were Koryu people settled around the area of Shenyang. And during the Mongol invasions, some of the Koryu minister also surrendered and attained official titles in Shenyang, which gave them authority to govern Koryu people in Manchuria around the Shenyang area. So this title of Prince of the Koryu kings and the former Koryu officials who surrendered and served the Mongols had a power struggle between them. So the former Koryu official became very entrenched in Shenyang and the name of that family was Hong. So the Hong clan complained that one prince should not be in fifth with two princely title. So Chunzong at the time, as I, I explained, held the title of the king of Koryo and the title of the prince. The campaign of the Hong clan was targeted at the Koryo kings because of their, their power struggle in Shenyang. So to solve this problem, Chungson enfeebed a nephew named Wang Ko to the title of Prince Shenyang or, or Prince Shen. And then he himself maintained the title. And then later he retired and gave the title, passed down the title of Koryo kings to his son, who became Chungso. At the same time, Wang Ko also was named the heir apparent uh, of the Koryo king. But he was later revoked this title because Chung Suk had a son. So this created another political struggle between the two lines. One, the Prince Shen and the other, the Koryo king of Chung Suk. So because of his previous ownership of the title of heir apparent or the crown prince of Koryo, Wang Ko or the Prince Shen pressed his claim and created a power struggle with Chung Suk. To summarize, perhaps the title of Prince was created for the contribution of Chung Sot's support for the enthronement of Wuzhong and Renzhong. But it later was also a source of a conflict between the two lines within the Koyo family. I see. So there is quite a bit of politics and history behind the creation of this princely title. Right. Uh, it's a very, uh, the, the whole history of Koryo during the uh, Mongol period was very complex. So as many people know, the Yuan dynasty was a very short-lived dynasty. It was among the shorter dynasties in Chinese history. In 1351, the Red Turban Revolt breaks out and very quickly it spirals out of control. By 1368, the newly established Ming dynasty managed to drive the last Yuan emperor away from Dadu and soon after that managed to drive him away from China proper altogether. So how did Koryo, given its extensive marriage ties with the Mongol Yuan, deal with the fall of the Yuan and the rise of the Ming? So the relationship between Koryo court and the Mongol court was quite complex. When the Mongol emperors reigned, uh, the Koryo kings had free ties with the Mongol emperors, as I, I previously uh, mentioned. Uh, they were imperial sons-in-law 
They were vassals of the Mongol emperors as they were invested as the king of Koryo. And they were also administrative officials as they were the heads of the Grand Secretariat of Koryo. As we have discussed earlier that the Koryo people also had multiple ties with the Mongol court through the marriage with the Mongol court Mongol ministers and the Mongol emperors. And some of the Koryo families also sent their sons to serve as imperial eunuchs in the Mongol court as well. So the Koryo people also had multiple ties with the Mongol court and Yan China. Even so, Koryo was still a state with its own distinct people, culture, and society. So it would be understandable that the priority of the Koryo kings and ministers was to survive the political turmoil during the transitional period between the Yuan and Ming. The Ming took the Yuan capital Dado, which is nowadays Beijing, in 1368. But the conquest of the Ming was yet to be finished because the retreated Mongols still controlled Manchuria. And I believe Southwest China was still under Mongol control until the late 1380s. So to Koryo people, it was unclear of who would win the race eventually. And what Koryo did during this power struggle was to adopt the two-pronged diplomacy and maintained diplomatic relations with both the Ming and Yuan. It was only after the late 1380s when the Ming incorporated Manchuria within this empire that Koryo diplomacy leaned toward the Ming. But Ming control of Manchuria also caused tension between Ming and Koryo. Without Mongols to keep the Ming in check, the Ming began to press territorial claim on former Yuan territory in Koryo. So some of the background of the Yuan territory in Koryo was that the Mongols controlled the northeast region of Koryo since 1258, when some of the Koryo ministers and Koryo people surrendered to the Mongols and defected to the Mongols. It was later recovered by King Kongmin in 1356. And what the Ming court wanted to achieve was to restore the border before 1356 as a successor state of the Mongol Yuan. The territorial claim of the Ming did not sit well with the Koryo court. So the Koryo king at that time decided to launch a preemptive strike towards Manchuria. The expedition forces mutinied right before it crossed the Amnuk River or the Yalu River. The leader of the coup was Isongge, who controlled the court after the mutiny and later founded the Choshan dynasty in 1392. So this is a brief course of events of how the Koryo court deal with the fall of the Mongols and the rise of the Ming during this transitional period. So we can see that the Koryo court was quite pragmatic in its diplomacy during this period. Yeah, and I think this Yuan-Ming transitional period is just such a fascinating period because you have Koryo struggling on the one hand with their extensive Mongol ties and on the other hand with how to deal with this very powerful newly established Ming dynasty. And at the same time, it also has to deal with its internal politics and internal dissent as well. But thank you so much, King Kuang, for coming to the show and sharing so much wonderful information about Koryo under Mongol rule. 
it's just such a fascinating period, both for China and for Korea, because you have the Koryo king intermarrying with the Mongols and then wearing all these different identities. And you have all these politics and relationships complicating the dynamic between Koryo and the Yuan. All of this makes their relationship so interesting. And I hope in the future you can come back and join us to talk a little bit more about Koryo under Mongol rule. No, I think I, I should thank you for inviting me to this uh, very interesting podcast as well to share some of my thoughts with the, the complex relations between the Mongols and Koryo. And I think it's good to have such an avenue where both the history of Koryo and the history of the Mongols with still so many things that we can discuss and discover with our conversations here and, and to let the others know about it too. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So thank you again. That concludes our interview today. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast, and we'll see you next time.